Good morning. As we begin, I want to ask you, how are you at grammar? I know that's a funny question. Uh, did you learn it when you were in grammar school? I mean, we don't even call it that anymore. It's now elementary school, unless you, I guess, have a classical education. But I think a lot of us in the U.S., you know, maybe we were taught grammar, uh, proper grammar in our speaking or our writing, but very few of us were taught the rules or the mechanics of grammar. I think many of us only learn about things like verbs and nouns and tense and mood uh, when we begin studying a second language. Well, this morning we're going to begin with a little grammar lesson, but a specific one. We're going to learn the grammar of the gospel, and it's all about indicative and imperative verbs. Okay, let me explain. If a verb is an indicative verb, that means it is indicating something. Something has happened uh, or is happening or will happen. It just is. So the phrase, the knife is on the table, is an indicative. We're told what is. You know, if my wife asks, hey, where, where'd my butter knife go? And I can say, oh, I answer with an indicative. The knife is on the table. But if the verb is an imperative, well, then it means something is being commanded. Put the knife on the table. That's an imperative phrase, okay? an imperative verb. I'm telling you to do it or commanding you to do it. So when my three-year-old picks up a steak knife, I might say, put the knife on the table. Do you follow so far? All right. In the grammar of the gospel, imperatives always rest on, on, on indicatives. Let me say that again. In the grammar of the gospel, imperatives always rest on indicatives. God's commands always rest on what he has already done and who he is. So maybe the most famous commands in the Bible, the Ten Commandments. Do you remember how they begin? It's in the book of Exodus. Moses has brought the people out of Egypt. God has redeemed them from slavery. And then he gives them on Sinai the, the Ten Commandments. But do you remember how they start? Exodus chapter 20, verse 1, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The commandments, the commands rest on who God is and what he has done. The imperatives rest on the indicatives. This is why many of the New Testament letters, they, they begin with an explanation of the gospel, the glories of all that Christ has done for us before they then turn to how the church should now live. Well, here we are in our fifth week in the book of 1 Peter, and we will come to the first two commands, the first two imperatives found in the book. Hope and be holy. Okay, we're commanded to hope and be holy. But as we'll see, these are interrelated. But we need to hold on to our grammar lesson for a second because we're going to come back to it several times as we dig into this. But here's our main point for this morning, okay? The Christian life should be a holy life. Let me say that again. The Christian life should be a holy life. Our calling as believers is to be holy. If we get that, we get the Christian life, okay? But what we're going to see in our passage is three aspects of this calling, okay? We are called to three things. We're called to be who we will be. We are called to be who we are. And we're called to be like who he is. 
me say that again. We're called to be who we will be, to be who we are, and to be like who he is. With that in mind, let's read our passage, uh, and then we'll get into it. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. If you're not there yet, get there. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. Here we go. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In church, this is God's word for God's people. Let me pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have spoken to us. And we ask now that you would indeed speak to us through it. As we dig into your word, would your Holy Spirit press its truths upon us and would we be changed, transformed this morning. For your glory and for our joy, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. All right, let's get into it. Our first point, we are called to be who we will be. Verse 13. Our passage begins with an incredibly important word. Maybe one of the most important words in the New Testament. The word is, therefore. Therefore. This word points us to the grammar of the gospel. Peter is continuing his, his thoughts uh, from the previous 12 verses. Okay, He's flowing and he's grounding what he's about to say in all that he has said before. He's saying, because everything I just said is true, therefore, now live this way. Now, what has he just said? What is the context for the commands that will follow this, therefore? Well, he's grounding his call to holiness in the glories of the gospel that he laid out to encourage those undergoing trials and persecution. He says, because God has chosen you, because he's sanctifying you, because of his great mercy, because you have been born again, because you have living hope, because Jesus was raised, because you have a secure inheritance, because you can rejoice in trials, because of the fullness of your salvation, because of all of that, therefore, that word, it's the pivot from the indicatives of the previous 12 verses to now the imperatives of what's going to follow. But Peter goes on. He says, therefore, Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, the first true imperative in the letter is to hope. I love that. He commands them to hope, to believe. He says, because of all that's happened, believe in it and, and look forward and hope. Trust in what will be. But the second command, to be holy, well, it flows from this first command. We trust in what has happened and what will be, and we live from that. We are to be holy, to be who we will be. Now, this connection between holy living and hope will come up again in chapter 3. There in chapter 3, Peter says that, that, that believers, as they live holy lives in the face of suffering, that this will cause the unbelieving world to, to take notice and to ask questions specifically about their hope. 
Peter says, he says, be ready to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. As they live holy lives in the context of persecution, people wonder and they begin asking specifically about their hope. Hope leads to holy living that befuddles the watching world. We are called to to set our hope fully on future grace and then to be holy now, to be who we will be. Now, Peter uses two participles at the beginning to tell us what setting our hope will entail. He says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope. Setting Setting our hope on what we will be, it means getting our heads on straight. Now, in your Bibles, if you look, there might be a footnote next to that phrase, prepare your minds for action. Down at the bottom, it might say, this is literally, in Greek, gird up the loins of your mind. Okay, it's a very uh, explicit image or metaphor, a classic biblical metaphor or image. And what it is, is it's describing what happens when a man wearing a robe, what he needs to do if he's going to get into action, to spring into action, either to run or to go to battle. If he has a big, long robe, well, he has to gather, you know, the ends of the garment, gather them up and, and tie it off into his belt. He has to gird up his loins so that he can run, so that he can move, so that he can be active. You know, if we have a hard trouble wrapping our minds around that ancient context, think of a bride at a wedding who has a super long train and as she's going to go to the reception, what do they do? They bustle it up. They, they tie up, they gather up all of that fabric so that she can walk around. Or maybe you can think of, you know, after dinner, the bridesmaids running onto the dance floor. What are they doing if they have big, long gowns? Well, they're, they're gathering up their gowns so that they can let loose and dance on the dance floor. Well, it's the same thing with with men wearing robes going into battle. They need to gird up their loins. And Peter says, do that with your minds. To set your hope on what will be is to prepare yourself mentally for trials and struggles. It's to prepare yourself mentally for the battle of life. But he goes on, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded. Again, it's a powerful image or metaphor for readiness, for clarity. We need to actively and diligently bring to mind our hope, to to set our hope on what will be in order to endure this life while living holy lives. Now, as we think about what it means to be sober-minded, we might think of the opposite to help us. Okay, what is that? Well, I suppose it's to to be drunk in our mind, to be drunk mentally, or to have mental inebriation. And this might happen for a variety uh, of reasons. You know, we have phrases, even in the way that we talk, you can say, you are intoxicated with love. We know what that means. The person may not always be thinking clearly because they're so enraptured uh, with love for a person or a thing. And, And as we think about our lives, maybe we are so intoxicated with love for the world that we need to be woken up. We maybe need some hard truth because we've been lulled to sleep. Another way we might be mentally inebriated is, well, maybe we're in a self-medicated stupor. You know, we're, we're, maybe because of our context, so desperate or overwhelmed that we've decided to dull our senses, to distract ourselves kind of into oblivion so we don't have to face the music. You know, maybe we're not thinking clearly because, well, really, we don't want to. Truth is, is too much right now. Another way we might be mentally inebriated, mental, have mental drunkenness, is if we are punch drunk. 
Do you know what it means to be punch drunk and in a boxing ring? Someone's been hit so many times that they're a little dazed and, and what does the trainer do? He brings out smelling salts, you know, to wake them up, to give them clarity so that they can get back to the battle, back to action. Well, for us, maybe it feels like life is hitting us so many times and so hard we are mentally spinning. And Peter says we need to prepare our minds for action. We need to sober up. You know, that third idea of being punch drunk, I think it might be a, a likely explanation for Peter's original audience as they are suffering persecution and trials. He says, sober up, think clearly and, and dirt up, get ready. Because trials are no excuse for sin. You are called to be holy, even in the midst of this. Now, I don't know about you, but that grabs my attention as we consider our own context, our own discomfort, or the heat that we experience right now in 2020. We are called to be holy. But if we're honest, it's in times like these that maybe we realize how unholy we really are. Because trials, well, they have a way of exposing or revealing our dormant sin. My kids love playing in puddles. I don't know if that's just generally humans love this, but my kids love playing in puddles. And puddles are funny because, you know, maybe even like a mountain pool, they can look clean until you jump into them. You know, when a puddle, a mud puddle is allowed to, to stand still for a while and at ease, you know, it can look clean because all of the, the particles, all of the mud, all of the dirt, you know, it sinks down to the bottom where it can rest. And only when it's stirred or disturbed or my kid jumps in, everything gets swirled up again and the impurity, the mud, is revealed. The same is true. I don't know if you've ever been hiking in the mountains and there's a cool, you know, pool of water and you jump in and all the moss that was on the rocks, all the dirt on the bottom, it's stirred up and all of a sudden that crystal clear pool looks disgusting and muddy, impure. Well, the same can be true of our lives. Trials can stir us up to show us our sins in how you know, viciously or selfishly we react to the trials. You know, a, a screaming one-year-old has an amazing ability to draw out of me sins that I thought I had under control. Well, how many of us have felt our calm little pools, our puddles, stirred up by the various trials of 2020? How many of us have found that, man, maybe we're not as patient as we once thought? How many of us have found that maybe we're not as self-controlled as we once thought? We're not as gentle as we once thought. You know, I think this year, many of us have had dormant sins revealed because of it. But we can't let trials serve as an excuse for sin, no. We need to think clearly and be ready. You know, through trials, we do get to know ourselves better, to recognize the evils that had previously lain hidden in our hearts. But we are called to confront them, armed with the truths of the gospel. In light of all that God has done for us, Peter says, therefore, get in your mind girded up and sobered up, set your hope on what will be. Friends, heaven and the new heavens and the new earth, these are sinless places. When we get there, we will be sinless. We will be made holy, finally perfect. And Peter is saying, get ready to be there. You know, we all have friends or family who love to prepare for their trips or their vacations. 
You know, if they're going to go on a trip and it's going to be physically strenuous, maybe they, they train for it. Or if they're going to a place that, that, where they speak another language, maybe they start practicing that language a little bit around the house and, and looking at books or listening to stuff. You know, if it's a different culture, they start visualizing themselves in it, getting in the mood for their trip. I don't know if you have ever had friends who are going to Hawaii and they try to get those aloha vibes nice and early before they go, they're trying to bring their vacation down into the present. You know, if they're going to Europe, maybe they, they, a week in advance, stop wearing deodorant and start wearing capris. I don't know. You know, different things to prepare for their trips. The point is, we know that they, they get ready. They're looking forward and they start living now for then. They're trying to import that future vacation life into the present. Well, we can do that with the kingdom that we're looking forward to. We live now as exiles, but in anticipation of going home. We can pursue holiness now and be who we will be. So set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ and live into that. And now be who you will be. All right. We are called to be who we will be. Second, we are called to be who we are. To be who we are. Verse 14. Verse 14 says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. What is Peter saying? He's saying, don't be who you were. Be who you are. Let's be who we are. Now, I know this phrase may sound similar to a... a a phrase that's culturally thrown around a lot right now. Okay, you be you. Be who you are sounds kind of like you be you, but there's a massive and fundamental difference. Because in our culture today, you are expected to walk a road of self-discovery, to look in, to discover, to find out who you really are, to reflect and figure out who you really are, and then you be you. But that's not the message of the gospel. Peter says, God has caused you to be born again. He has given you new life. He has given you a new status, a new inheritance, a new family, a new identity, a new hope, a new joy. It has been given to you. And if you are in Christ, this is who you are. And now be who you are. See, the most fundamental thing about you, it's not your strengths finder, or your Myers-Briggs or your Enneagram. It's not your personality or your sexuality or your nationality or your intersectionality. It's not your political party. It's not your love for your candidate or your hatred for your other candidate. It's not your job or your family or your friends or your hobbies. The most fundamental thing about you is your identity in Christ. Again, the most fundamental thing about you is not represented by a number or some initials or the latest BuzzFeed quiz about Gryffindors and Hufflepuffs. No, it's Christ. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So be who you are. If you are in Christ, according to verses 1 to 12, you have been chosen. You are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God. If you're in Christ, you have been born again according to God's great mercy. If you are in Christ, you have been brought into a new family. So, as obedient children, be who you are. 
This was a, a radical message for Peter's first readers, his first listeners. See, Peter is writing to Gentiles, those who were not considered a part of Israel, not a part of the people of God. In fact, they were considered unclean. You weren't even allowed to dine with Gentiles if you were a Jew because it would make you unclean, unholy. But Peter says, through Christ, you have been brought near. You have been made holy. He looks at them and says, you Gentiles have been born again. You have been made a child of God. You have been brought into the family. You are holy through the work of Christ. Now be holy. Be who you are. I would encourage you, uh, maybe this afternoon or, or this week, go home and, and read Acts chapter 10. And consider what a big deal it is for Peter to write this message. Peter, who had to have a, a vision from God to help him wrap his mind around the fact that the gospel can go to the Gentiles, that the unclean can be made clean, made holy. It's amazing. Acts chapter 10, go read it. But for his readers, their holiness flows from who they are in Christ. And the same is true for us. Remember, the imperative, the command, rests on the indicative. The imperative, the command, do not be conformed, but be holy, this rests on the indicative, what is already true. You are children of God. Having been born again by the mercy of God, we are called now, as God's children, we were born and our children, we're called to obedience through holy living. Now that phrase, do not be conformed, it's not a, a command on its own. It's actually another participle, kind of like preparing or, or being sober-minded. So maybe a more literal translation would be, as obedient children, not being conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, now be holy. What's the point? The point is that the command is, is to be holy, and, and holiness will in part include resisting former passions and not being conformed to them. So we can ask ourselves, how, how are we doing at this? If we think about it, the world around us is also going through this global trial. It's not just believers. And, and, and all around us in the culture, the heat is on, the pressure is built up in the kettle. Okay, people are going nuts. And as we consider those in the world that don't know Jesus, we realize there are those who do not have our hope. They are, at the moment, ignorant of the good news of the gospel that we know. They don't know what we know. And so we could ask ourselves, okay, how are they acting? Okay, how are they reacting to the trials and the struggles and the pressure of this year? And as we hold that in mind, we then need to ask, and how do we compare to them? Do we look just like them? Are we maybe still conformed to the same ignorant passions that they are? Is there any difference at all? Or are we set apart? Are we holy? Is there any part of us that is holy as God is holy instead of looking just like them? Now, I don't care what political leaning you have or what news you read or listen to or watch. We need to ask, do you look and sound and reason just like them? Or is there anything about you that is different because of the gospel? Are you holy? The question is, which shape will you take? To which shape will you be conformed? Your former ignorance 
or God's holiness. See, the scary principle that this is pointing to is that we become like what we worship. That's a theme that runs through every page of the Bible. You become like what you worship. Do you remember Mount Sinai? Okay, right before the Ten Commandments? Moses is on the mountain. Fire is blazing. The people were afraid to go up because of God's power on display. And so the people are down on the ground while Moses is up there. And it, barely any time goes by. And they say, hey, we don't even know where Moses went. I know what we should do. Let's make a God. And so they take off their earrings and their rings. And they throw it in the fire. And they fashion this golden calf, this golden cow or bull. And when God on the mountain sees it, he says, those people are a stiff-necked people. What does that mean? Stiff-necked. It means that they worshiped a calf and have become like a stubborn calf themselves. Maybe you've read Psalm 115. And in that psalm, the, the psalmist is reflecting. He says, the nations, they're mocking Israel because Israel's God is, is invisible. They don't have a statue of their God. They don't have idols of their God. And so the nations say, where is their God? But the psalmist retorts, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. But then he looks at them and their idols and he says, their idols? Well, they're silver and gold made by human hands. They have mouths but do not speak. They're little statues. They have eyes but they do not see. They have ears but they can't hear. Noses but they don't smell. They have hands but they can't feel. They have feet but they don't walk. But then the psalmist says, those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Whoa, it's haunting. You become like what you worship. And if you worship dead, inanimate idols, you will find your ears no longer hearing, your eyes no longer seeing. You will lose your ability to sense things of the spiritual world, things of God. You become like what you worship. See, the world doesn't know what we know. They don't share our hope or our inexpressible joy or our Heavenly Father or our Savior. Will we be conformed to their image? Peter says, as obedient children, no more. Be who you are. Be conformed no longer to the passions of your former ignorance. Instead, be holy as God is holy. And this brings us to our last point. We're called to be who we will be. We're called to be who we are. And lastly, to be like who he is. Verse 15 and 16. Verses 15 and 16 say this. They say, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Okay, the grammar of the gospel. It's right there. The imperative, the command to be holy rests on the indicative. God is holy and he has called us into a relationship with him. I mean, that idea is breathtaking and astounding that a holy God would invite us in, invite us near. Now, our effort at holy lives, living holy lives, it does not earn our position with God. It flows from it. We have been called and made children and saved. And now we are to be like him, to be holy. Now, to be holy, it's not a call to prudish, maybe tight-laced, uh, cold or prideful moralism. Okay? It's not a call to follow a bunch of rules and to tick a bunch of boxes, nor is it a call to soul-crushing busy work. No, it's a call to life. It's 
called to life. A few years ago, my wife's grandfather died. And so we went up to, out to New York to, to go to the funeral. And before the funeral, they had a viewing. We could go into this little room at the mortuary, and there was the cask, and it was open. And the morticians, you know, they did their best to, to dress up his body, to make him look nice. But we all knew it's just not him, because there was no life. Well, Charles Spurgeon was a, a famous preacher in London, and he contrasts moralism with holiness. And he compares them to a corpse that is dressed up for burial and a true living human. He says this, he says, Morality does but skim the surface. Holiness goes into the very caverns of the great deep. Holiness requires that the heart shall be set on God and that it shall beat with love to him. See, the moral man may feel complete in his morality without that. Hello, this methinks I might draw such a parallel as this. Morality is a sweet, fair corpse, well washed and robed and even embalmed with spices, but holiness is the living man, as fair and lovely as the other, but having life. Morality, it lies there of the earth, earthy, soon to be uh, soon to be food for corruption and worms. But holiness waits and pants with heavenly aspirations, prepared to mount and dwell in immortality beyond the stars. These two are of opposite nature. The one belongs to this world. The other belongs to that world beyond the skies. What is Spurgeon saying? He's saying we worship a living God who is holy in all that he is and does, and we are called to be like him and to truly live. The difference between morality and holiness is the difference between, you know, doing a few nice things for someone, checking the boxes, and truly loving them, living out of your love for them. One is dead, the other is alive. That's why Peter says, gird up and, and sober up. We need to pay attention and to wake up to this life. See, nothing wakes you up, nothing sobers you up like the holiness of the living God. You know, Karl Marx, that bearded socialist, said that, that religion is the opium of the masses. And I would just say, all contraire, my friend, it is the exact opposite. An encounter with the holy living God will wake you up, not put you to sleep. When we talk about our holiness, well, we talk about being set apart, different from the world, in the way that we resemble him. Our holiness is defined by what he is like. But what does it mean for God to be set apart, to be holy? Well, he is set apart in his perfection and purity, yes, but also in that no one can come close to him in his perfection and in all of his attributes. See, he alone is God, and he alone is holy, truly holy. His love is holy love. It's set-apart love. It's so much more loving than any other love in the universe. So in with his justice, it's holy justice. It's set-apart in that it is more just justice than any other justice in the universe. And the same is true with his power, it's holy power. His grace, it's holy grace. His mercy, it's holy mercy. His wisdom, it's holy wisdom. He is holy. No one is like him. 
And so the psalmist can cry out, who is like you, O Lord? And the answer, of course, is no one. There is no one like our God. You know, many of us know that, that when something is repeated in the Bible, in Hebrew or Greek, uh, it's really important that it's repeated. So when Jesus says, truly, truly, I tell you, he means what he's about to say is really true. Well, did you know that in the Bible, the only description of God that is repeated three times, you know, you get this threefold description, this threefold format, the only time that happens is when God is called holy, holy, holy. Just think about that. Not loving, 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 not just, 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 not power, 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 holy, holy, holy. So in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet is given this vision of the heavenly, you know, temple. And the angels are crying out, holy, 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 are you Lord, O God. And the doorframe and the threshold of the temple is shaking at their voices as though even inanimate objects tremble at the holiness of God. And if inanimate objects, doorposts, shake at the sight of a holy God, how much more must we sinners tremble? His holiness awakens us. You know, a floodlight is shown into the deepest recesses of our hearts and we're exposed. It's shocking and, and, and we wake up. If God's holiness isn't sobering, and I want to encourage you to take some time to, to read up on the holiness of God. Maybe as you read your Bible, pay attention to the places that talk about God's holiness. Or maybe grab a book. Maybe get J.C. Ryle's Holiness or R.C. Sproul's The Holiness of God. I think you can get both of those free on Kindle. Or Kevin DeYoung has a book, The Whole in Our Holiness. All of them, they, they reflect on how we're called to be holy, but they look at the holiness of, of who God is. That's God we worship. See, God's holiness, it's... It's alluring and, and attractive, but it's wild and untamed. And it's both life-giving, but also terrifying. You know, throughout the Bible, when a sinful human encounters God's holiness, there's always two responses. Okay, you have both terror and a desire to flee, and yet a longing for more to stay. You have both. So, so Peter, when he is confronted with one of Jesus' first miracles, he says, depart from me, I'm a sinner. But then on the Mount of Transfiguration, when he sees Jesus in his perfection, his, his glory, his holiness, he says, whoa, let's stay here. Let's build a few tents for these people. We should stay here. You get both. See, like a moth to flame, sinners are at the same time attracted to the beauty and the power and the life of God's alluring beauty. And yet, in our sinful state, we are repelled as we feel convicted and threatened by the light. It's the great tragedy of the Bible that humans hate and rebel against the thing that our hearts long for most. Let me say that again. It's the great tragedy of the Bible that humans, we, we hate and we rebel against the thing that our hearts long for most. God's holiness, his presence, who he is. But herein lies the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of Peter's words. He who called you is holy. We are being summoned. He says, you shall be holy for I am holy. Now that's a quotation from Leviticus and we may not realize it, but it is an invitation from a holy God into an intimate relationship with him. See, Peter here is quoting Leviticus. 
11.4, chapter 19.2, and these are central passages from the Old Covenant. Now, I know Leviticus can be intimidating. It's the place where all, you know, Bible reading plans go to die. Um, we have a hard time with it. But the book of Leviticus, it essentially answers one question. It's answering the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people without incinerating them, without destroying them? If you read the book of Exodus, God's holiness is power. It's seen in fire. So the book opens with the burning bush. There's this little burning bush, but as the book progresses soon, they're being led out of Egypt and there's a pillar of fire and smoke. But when they get to Sinai, man, God's holiness on display, fire shaking the top of the mountain. It's this uncontrollable, powerful fire. And meanwhile, the people are making idols down on the ground of golden calves. And there's this question, how can that God in its power dwell in the midst, in the center of these people? How can there even be a tabernacle without it just obliterating everybody? And that's what Leviticus answers. See, the answer that comes in the book of Leviticus is that he, that God, needs to make them holy. That's what Leviticus is about. All of those rules, all of the rituals, all of the sacrificial system, it's about God making pathways for his people to be holy so they can have an intimate relationship with him. On this side of the cross, all of the indicatives in verses 1 to 12, we have a different pathway to holiness and therefore to life with the holy God. Or maybe we should say a truer pathway. It's not all that different. See, it's not the blood of bulls and of goats, but the blood of Christ that cleanses us. We can be in God's presence because of Jesus and what he's done. He is the thing that all of those rituals and sacrificial system pointed to. He actually can make us holy before God. And so we can sing lyrics like, nothing is holding me back from you, redeemer of my soul. Because of Christ, we can be brought in. And so we end exactly where we started, with the grammar of the gospel. Morality says, make yourself clean, and maybe you can clean up enough to be with a holy God. But the gospel says true holiness is done for you in Christ. So now live in it. Christ makes you clean at the cross. And then we are united to him in faith. And we have his spirit at work within us, working, convicting of sin, and empowering us for holy living. That we might be holy as he is holy. The command, the imperative, rests on the indicative. Christian life is a holy life. So let's live it. Let me pray. God, it's a simple prayer. Would you empower us? Would you be at work within us? Would you do everything we need so that we might be holy as you are holy? Our hearts long for it. Our hearts are beating God, we want an encounter with you. We want to be with you. We want to be made holy so that we might be with you. God, do it in us, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.